Thank you, Mrs. Smithy. That was a blessing, and uh, what a beautiful time of year we're entering into, the fall season, and it's a good time to think about the goodness of God and uh, His uh, steadfastness in holding us and, and keeping us, and uh, we live in a world that is uh, really uh, tumultuous, and uh, even as Dr. Getch was referencing the uh, hatred towards Israel, <clears throat> and uh, this, of course, goes back many thousands of years, and even to the time of Isaac and Ishmael, and, and we recognize that uh, this is a part of God's unfolding plan, and yet uh, we see the hatred for Israel and we pray for them. Look in your Bibles, if you would, at Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse number 2. I want to just mention <clears throat> to you something about Israel. Of course, the Bible tells us we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2, the Bible says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee, to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Sometimes people say, well, why do we pray for Israel? Why does it bother us when they're surrounded on every side by enemies that want to destroy them? Because they are God's peculiar or chosen people. And uh, we want to recognize that as Christians, uh, that if God has chosen them for his purposes, then we're going to pray for them and we're going to stand by them. Genesis 12:3 says that God will bless those that bless Israel. God will curse those that curse Israel. And uh, so remember to keep uh, Israel in your prayers as uh, they are <clears throat> at this time eradicating the Hamas and uh, pray that uh, they can have this accomplished uh, as soon as possible. And that soon, that might be several months. I have no idea, but we want to pray with them through the process of this time. And I want you to see scripturally and to know scripturally that God has chosen them as his people. And someone says, why? Uh, well, we don't know always every why. We just know if God said it, then we're going to do what God says. And so, uh, but in the scriptures, he commands us to pray for them and, uh, and, to, and to favor them. I do want to encourage you, uh, as Brother Getch mentioned about uh, Mr. Cantor coming into chapel, he is a Christian businessman who watched a film about hell when he was a college student and got saved. He's what they call a messianic Jew. That is to say, he's born again. He's accepted Christ as his Savior. And uh, <clears throat> I remember many years ago sitting in my home and having a meal with him until about 1.30 in the morning. And he, he spoke about uh, Jewish history and Jewish prophecies. And uh, I was amazed at the knowledge that he had for the uh, Old Testament uh, for the uh, prophecy concerning the Jewish people, you will greatly enjoy hearing him in chapel. And Dr. Rasmussen is going to arrange for many of you to hear from him after chapel for a few moments. And part of the reason that I invited him to come to chapel in this earlier part of the year is so that many of you who are considering summer opportunities would sign up for the Jewish evangelism this summer. That's why I invited him in October so that you could hear him early because there's a lot of folks that come by and they talk to you about this activity and that activity. And, and just every one of these activities are good. But for some of you this summer, uh, this might be the best for you. And I say that for a few reasons because the Bible, first of all, says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Here's an opportunity for some of you to receive training from Mr. Cantor and his staff on how to witness to a Jew and then to be assigned to a city like New York City or Miami or Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, to have lodging provided by a sister church that Dr. Rasmussen and others coordinate for you, uh, and then to go out 
and a witness to the people that God says are his peculiar people. I consider this a privilege and the partnership with Mr. Cantor a privilege. And I want to encourage many of you, uh, and, and, and I know some of you want to get involved in a camp and kind of a glorified vacation Bible school experience all summer. There's merit to that, but I, I view the Jewish evangelism as being on front lines of ministry. Uh, you're not going to be playing hoop-de-hoop and war ball and all these types of things, and there's a place for that. But I'm just saying, here's a missions opportunity for you. And so as Dr. Rasmussen makes the announcements and as you hear about it, I want to encourage you uh, to sign up. And, uh, not the least reason, uh, also I might add, uh, if you are involved in the Summer Jewish, uh, then the scholarship will pay for your entire semester the following semester. That's quite amazing when you think about it. An amazing, generous offer from a man who simply has one motive, and that is to get the gospel out to Jewish people. So lots of emphasis on that at this time of year, uh, and I hope that you'll understand that it's all back to the fact that God says, these are a peculiar people unto me. I love them. I want them to know me. I want them to understand my love, and we get to be the vessels of that. So uh, be attentive to it. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1, and let's stand together for our scripture reading this morning. Colossians chapter 1, and uh, I do believe we have our interview days. Is it next week, Dr. Gedge? November. And I just want to say for our seniors, as you're approaching that, uh, let me just make it very clear that you seek counsel. And uh, I would not accept a position without talking to your home pastor. Uh, you can ask any one of us if you have a question about some, uh, something about an interview or something. But approach that with a lot of prayer, and, and uh, the Lord will lead and guide you, and we're happy to help you with that as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have the preeminence. I want to speak to you this morning about Christ and his church. The Bible teaches in Colossians 1.18 that he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. And today as we gather here, uh, we're not simply in a church building, but uh, we are training laborers for the harvest of Jesus Christ. And we believe that laborers uh, who are uh, working through the local New Testament church are doing the work of God in God's way. And we want to learn a little more about that this morning, so let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. We pray that you would bless our time in chapel this morning as we learn more about your work through the local church. We thank you, Father, for uh, students today who have a heart to serve you. Bless them for that. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray again for Israel today. Please guide and direct us in this hour, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we're going to study something that the Lord Jesus loves very much. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How much more could the Lord have expressed his love for the church than to give his life for the church, to die for the church? As we think about the church, we think about a local visible assembly. We look at the epistles and we read about a letter written to the church at Corinth. And we find that uh, in the New Testament, the word church is written 
117 times. 111 of those times, the reference is to a visible local body. And so while we believe that there is a family of God and there is a coming uh, together at the time of the uh, rapture of all of the the body, uh, in that sense, uh, when we speak of the church, we speak primarily of a local visible church because that is our privilege to participate in the local church uh, during this day in which we live. Charles Spurgeon said, if I never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, uh, I should have found that it was no longer perfect because I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. And I want to say that other than your family, you ought to love the church, labor in the church, pray for the church, and as I said to the men Wednesday night, do all that you can to be a servant leader within the local New Testament church. Now as we see in the text, Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the head of the church. Elsewhere he is referred to as the chief cornerstone of the church, and we must recognize that Jesus Christ uh, is the overseer in the sense of being uh, the chief shepherd of the church. The pastor is referred to as the under-shepherd, but Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of the church. I remember years ago witnessing to a man who was a member of the Orthodox Church, and Orthodox churches are very similar to Catholic churches. You have Coptic Orthodox in, uh, in uh, Egypt, and you have the Greek Orthodox Church and several other branches. And as I was talking to him, uh, he was explaining to me that he was Orthodox and not Catholic. And uh, he was explaining to me the differences and so forth. And, and then he said to me, as I was telling him about the Baptist church, he said, who is your uh, chief? And I, I, I didn't follow his questioning. Who is your chief? He wanted to know who the chief was. And I, I said, I, I'm not really sure. I don't really have a chief. And, and uh, then he said, well, you know, he said, we have, and he named the head of the Coptic church, and he said, the Catholics have the Pope. Who is your chief? And uh, he wanted to know, who's the chief Baptist? And I know some that think they are, but uh, I've never met the chief Baptist. And I said, oh, you mean, you mean the head of our church? He said, yes, who's the head of the church? And I said, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, I'm thankful that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. For even uh, as the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, even so Christ is the head of the church. Now, today we want to study the authentic New Testament church. And I want to give you just some general principles about uh, the Baptist church in which you serve. I want you to think, first of all, about the calling of the church. As we look back to the beginning of the church, and as we look back to the calling out of the first church members, I want you to know that the calling began with the invitation of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. The Bible says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. 
And immediately they left the ship and their father and followed him. Here we see the early origins of what I would believe is the New Testament church. Very simple, isn't it? Jesus saying, follow me. And they dropped their nets and they followed him. The church is a called out assembly. Jesus was calling out the early assembly. I believe that Jesus Christ is the founder of the church, the head of the church, the chief cornerstone of the church. And we see in Matthew 4 the forming assembly of the church. He called these disciples there in Galilee uh, unto himself, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And then he commissioned them as apostles in his church. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse, uh, verses 1 through 6, uh, he determined uh, the original apostles uh, in the church, those 12 apostles. Matthew 10 and verse 1 says, And when he had called them unto him, uh, unto him to his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And so this beginning of the church can be traced back to the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was by Jesus' invitation. But the beginning of the church was also by Jesus' authority. It was by his authority. The Bible says in Matthew 16, 18, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the authority of the church is based on the founder and the head the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, uh, upon this rock, uh, this word here we know to be the word Petra, uh, a, a rock, a projecting bedrock. Upon this rock, there is the word Petras. Uh, Peter, uh, uh, of course, is, uh, is referenced here, but we see that uh, the rock uh, that the church is built upon is not Peter. It is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so we see that Jesus Christ is the rock, the foundational rock of the church. The church, God's assembly, was not founded on man's authority, but it was founded on the Word of God. So when Jesus says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, he's not speaking of uh, the little rock, he's speaking of himself as the rock, the authority of the church. And this is what we read here in Colossians chapter 1. And he is the head of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. By the way, it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that a man, woman, boy, and girl may enter into heaven and may enter into the family of God. This is such an important principle. I remember years ago uh, visiting St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And as you walk into that giant edifice, that Catholic church, there are two golden keys in the marble as you walk into, the, into this building, two keys. And those keys represent the fact that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They teach that the church, through Peter, holds the keys to eternal life. They believe that Peter is the founder of the church. But when we study this word rock, we know that the rock that is spoken of is not the small rock. It is the great rock. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that this uh, Petra rock is the rock, the Lord, uh, upon which the church is built. And thank God that no church, no man holds the keys to heaven save the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
So he's the one who can give the invitation. And as he began his ministry around the shores of Galilee, teaching at Capernaum, he began to call these men unto himself. And this was the beginning of the church. I believe uh, when Jesus gave his great commission in Matthew 28, as we'll study in just a moment, he did this before the day of Pentecost. He gave his commission to these disciples and he said, I want you as the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Some universalists teach that the church began at the day of Pentecost and certainly it was empowered at the day of Pentecost, but I believe it began when Jesus called out his first disciples. And so he is the head of the church. Jesus Christ began the church by his invitation and by his authority. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells it this way, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen on, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. And so the calling of the church, it all began with the Lord Jesus Christ calling those early disciples unto himself. I want you to look secondly with me this morning at the composition of the church. The very simple overview this morning of the church. It began with the calling of Jesus at the shores of Galilee. And then the composition of the church. Turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy 3.15 for just a moment. 1 Timothy 3.15. It says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, biblically, the local church is a living habitation. We come together as what Peter calls lively or living stones, and we form a spiritual house or a spiritual body. This is the composition of the church, the church of the living God. And I'm thankful today that we serve a living God and that the church is alive and well in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the composition of the church, this living uh, uh, entity, this, uh, these lively stones uh, that as we come together and form local New Testament churches, I want you to think first of all about the fact that we are composed of called out people. The church is composed of called out people. Now, the Bible speaks of this in verse 15 when it speaks about the church of the living God. People that are called out, as we said a moment ago, the ecclesia. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.20 says it this way. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not uh, to eat the Lord's Supper. When you come together, therefore, into one place. Uh, this is for... Uh, the Bible says in that particular passage, not to eat the Lord's Supper. The church uh, is that one place, and we come together in the ecclesia, or in the, in the Scottish word was kirk, the English word church, and we gather together. Now, how does that happen? Well, first of all, it happens when you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. What is a church? A church is a saved, baptized body of believers. And we're called out through salvation, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How many of you remember when you got saved, amen? You, at that moment, became a part of the family of God, and you were called out of this world and unto Christ. Then, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
through the will of God and, and Sothenes, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, uh, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. And so uh, those at Corinth were people that had been called uh, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They were called out through salvation. But a church is comprised, as we said a moment ago, not only of saved people, but of baptized people. Saved, baptized membership. Baptists believe in a saved, baptized membership. We're identified through baptism. Water baptism identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism identifies us with the doctrine of the church where we are baptized. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a Christian. When you are baptized in a Presbyterian church, you become a Presbyterian. When you are baptized in Assemblies of God church, you become Assemblies of God. But when you are baptized in a Baptist church, you identify uh, with a body of faith as a Baptist. You believe that uh, you have eternal security. You believe that you have a home in heaven based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, you uh, are putting your faith in the doctrine of Christ alone for salvation. Now, uh, in, the early, uh, in the earlier centuries, there were great, uh, was great persecution upon the Baptists because they rejected, as the Roman church, especially after the third century, began to corrupt, uh, many of the Bible believers began to recognize that one of the false teachings of Catholicism was infant baptism. And, uh, and, and they rejected this throughout the Dark Ages. Many of our Baptist forefathers did. And uh, they rejected the infant baptism or the sprinkling. And though uh, some people may have been sprinkled as a baby when they were old enough to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, true Bible-believing Baptist people, or our forebears under different names at times, would take those who got saved, maybe at age 10, 12, or 20, and they would baptize them by immersion after they were saved, knowing what they did. And during that period of time, the Catholic Church began to call Baptist people Anabaptist or anti-baptism because we were rejecting the infant baptism and we were baptizing people under the water. Our enemies literally named us Anabaptist and after the Reformation times the prefix Anna was dropped and we were simply called Baptist. Uh, but uh, this, uh, this uh, mention of Baptist goes all the way back. This baptism really uh, goes all the way back. Though John the Baptist baptized under repentance, uh, the early church baptized by immersion as well as people identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can walk up the steps uh, into, the, uh, into the old city of Jerusalem even today, the southern steps, and notice uh, the various bath uh, uh, areas that were placed there for cleansing purposes, for ritual purposes. And uh, Bible scholars tell us that uh, 3,000 people could have been baptized in those uh, very uh, ritual baths that are present there. Uh, I've stood in uh, Byzantine-era churches and churches that were just a few centuries removed from Christ uh, that have uh, baptistries inside of them. And no doubt many were baptized in places like the Sea of Galilee and other places as well. But what we learn in the scriptures is quite clear. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Baptism. There's three great considerations for baptism. First is the order of baptism. You must be baptized after you accept Christ as Savior in order to be biblical. This is what Baptists have always taught. Secondly is the mode of baptism, which is immersion. 
That's why I'm mentioning to you these, uh, these ritual bathing places or the places, bodies of water, where people were baptized by immersion. And, and though the Catholics uh, instituted sprinkling a few centuries later, the Bible didn't institute sprinkling. The Bible institutes immersion. And so three considerations are the order, first is salvation, and then the mode, immersion, and then thirdly, the authority of the baptism. And I believe the authority of the baptism rests in a biblical doctrinally sound church where the authority is true and this is why at Lancaster Baptist if someone comes in and they say I got saved when I was a kid in a, someone's garage at a Bible school that the neighbor was having uh, and then they say and I got I got baptized by my uncle in the desert in the pool on vacation we're going to ask them to be baptized under the authority of the local New Testament church we have no idea what their uncle believed or didn't believe and baptism has those three components uh, order mode and authority should always be considered. Now, as the Catholic Church sprinkled and uh, as Baptists uh, baptized, that created tension. And it's interesting to me that in church history, not only did the Catholics persecute uh, our Baptist forefathers, but even at times, uh, the, some of the Reformers did and some of the uh, Protestants did. I remember years ago uh, visiting in uh, uh, in Switzerland. And as we were there, uh, I studied a little bit of the life of Ulrich Zwingli, one of the uh, fathers of the Reformation. And many of these men in the Reformation, especially around that area in Switzerland, they had somewhat of a state church concept, and they had infant baptism as a way to become a citizen as well as a member of the church. And so they had not completely shed their Catholicism, uh, even though they had come to justification by faith through Christ. They had much tradition that was rooted in Catholicism, and that's why you'll visit some churches such as maybe a certain Lutheran churches and such, and you'll see these resemblances and so forth because uh, they came out, but they, they did not come all the way out from certain uh, Catholic tradition. And I remember walking into Zwingli's church, and, and, and I was impressed. It was a huge cathedral, about the size of this building, and there were no saints hanging on the wall. There were no statues. You could tell that they had come somewhat out of Catholicism, which was a good thing. But right across the street from Zwingli's church, there was a plaque uh, on the a wall that kind of held back the riverbank, uh, the River Lamont. And on that plaque was a commemoration for a man named Felix Manns. And Felix Manns was drowned in 1525 by Ulrich Zwingli, this reformer, this Calvinist reformer. And the reason that he was drowned is because Manns had studied the scriptures and had come to the conviction that when someone was saved, they should be baptized after they were saved. And so he had baptized some of his family members. They had Bible studies in some of the country churches, uh, uh, which were mostly house churches. And they were teaching this baptism after salvation. And because the Protestants were so connected still to certain Catholic tradition, they believed in infant baptism. And because Felix Manns was baptizing in the river, they tied a stone to him and threw him in the river and took his life. And many of the relatives of Felix Manns 
made their way north to Amsterdam where they began worshiping as Baptists, baptizing people after their salvation. And this is just one story of many, many stories of people who believe that believer's baptism takes place after you accept Christ as your Savior, not when you're just a few days old and know nothing about what's going on. Romans 6 speaks of this, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So the composition of the church it is composed of people who've been called out by Jesus Christ and people who have been baptized to identify with Jesus Christ. Fairly simple, but sometimes we need to get to the basic things. This is the composition. It is composed of called out people. And then secondly, it consists in local assemblies. It consists in local assemblies. One Baptist uh, uh, historian and I don't agree with every single thing he wrote, but one of the great Baptist historians is B.H. Carroll. He was a man that wrote much about our Baptist history. He said, the universal church will not gather until the end of time when Christ is in the midst of the body. And I believe that statement to be true. I believe in the concept of the family of God and the day in which we live. But I believe that God is working today through local, visible churches. And uh, there will come a day... Uh, when we gather together universally, we could say, uh, all of us together with Christ. How many of you look forward to that day? I look forward to that day. Uh, but we are not a part of a universal church. The Roman Catholic Church refers to themselves as uh, the, the universal Roman church and so forth. We practice a belief in the literal church. Now, as early as Acts chapter 9, we see multiple churches being established in Judea, Galilee and Samaria. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31 says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. Acts 9 31. The churches had rest. There were churches being established in those early, early moments of the Christian history. Real churches were functioning, they were multiplying. Think of this now no denominations. No headquarters, no bureaucracies, just the apostles preaching. And assemblies were being established here and there and everywhere. People were learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. People were being saved and baptized. The church at Antioch conducted its own business meeting. And it was uh, first to officially send out missionaries uh, into the other parts of the world, Acts 14, 27. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how, they opened, how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Now listen carefully, because we live in a day with many denominations and groups and organizations. But when you study the New Testament, you find that there were a ga gathering assemblies and souls were being saved and souls were being baptized and even missionaries were being sent. And the missionaries came back to their sending church and they gave a report. And what I'm saying to you is that God's institution for doing the work of evangelism is the local New Testament church. 
You say, well, what about something like BIMI, Baptist International Missions? Thank God for their good work. They can help collect funds and send uh, emergency evacuation if a country is overtaken in war. They can uh, perhaps help with tax returns for missionaries. And, and I appreciate organizations that come alongside the local church and assist in that way. But we must never forget that God's institution for evangelism and even mission sending is the local New Testament church. The first question I ask a missionary is not, what's your board? The first question I want to know is, what's your local church? Because I can study that local church and the, the pastor and the doctrine of the church and it tells me a lot about that missionary. And so we see the calling of the church begin with Jesus Christ. The composition of the church is made up of saved, baptized people who gather in local assemblies. We see the calling, we see the composition. Let's notice finally this morning the continuation. Now this plan that God instituted, and I believe that Jesus instituted this plan, I hope I made that very clear, that when Jesus began calling out his disciples, he was starting his church. He instituted uh, this matter of, of uh, people being saved and called unto himself and then helped them to organize bodies of believers called churches. Now, how does this continue? What is God's plan so that more churches are started and more people are saved and more people are baptized? Well, this is going to take place as we obey his great commission. And that's why you're here today, because we have a great commission. And many Christian liberal arts universities are not emphasizing the great commission. Uh, it, with them, it's the great omission. But with us, we want to get back to the fact it's the great commission. God has commissioned every one of us to go into all the world. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 28, and let's just re be reminded of the commission. Because as a, as a Bible college, we want to replicate uh, what we see in the New Testament regarding the beginning and the composition of the churches and then the multiplication of the churches. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to his church, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now here we see these apostles are gathered back to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is now going to give to them his great commission. Uh, he would be with them through the Holy Spirit who would come upon them at Pentecost, but he is transferring a great responsibility to them and he has transferred that to the church and as we are uh, in the lineage of these disciples spiritually, it has been transferred to us to this very day. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We're a part of that spiritual building, and God has called us to take the good news of the gospel into our city, whether it's to the Jewish neighborhoods this Saturday, whether it's to Lancaster, whether it's the city that you go to after graduation, wherever it is, that this matter of the continuation of the church hinges upon our obedience to the great commission of Jesus Christ. You say, well, doesn't God know who's going to get saved or who won't get saved? Of course God knows that, but we don't know who's going to get saved or not get saved, and so God tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't tell the wrong person about Jesus Christ. And so I think of this great commission. But then it's not only through the commission, but as I said, it's through our obedience. We must be obedient. 
We must not neglect the church. Sometimes I'll hear of a graduate that maybe didn't get into ministry or something and they're not even being faithful to church. That grieves my heart. At the very baseline of things, you ought to be a great church member as a graduate of West Coast Baptist College. But more than that, you ought to be a teacher, a leader, a choir leader, a youth leader, a preacher, an evangelist, someone that is loving the church and helping the church to go forward. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. God says, I want you to make much of my church. I want you to consider one another, encourage one another gathered together in the church. I want you to stand for the church. Ephesians 6, 14. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And I think of those who have stood for the doctrine of the church and for the doctrine of Jesus Christ. I think of the Dark Ages in particular. And uh, one Dutch Reformed historian by the name of Dermout Yipeg wrote, We have now seen that the Baptists who were formerly called Anabaptists and sometimes called Mennonites, were the original Waldensians and who have long in the history of the church received the honor of that origin. Now the Reformation took place and, uh, and, and yet the Bible tells us that prior to the Reformation, uh, excuse me, history tells us that prior, and the scriptures tell us uh, in the early centuries, that there were those who were standing long before the Reformation. And some of those are called uh, by different names, but we thank the Lord for their faithfulness. I think about the Waldensians in particular. Peter Waldo came from uh, Lyon, France, uh, fleeing Catholic persecution. He came into northern Italy, into uh, the area that is uh, adjacent from the, the hills that he had uh, seen as he was a young boy growing up. And Peter Waldo, as he came uh, fleeing uh, the Pope and the Crusades against the Waldensians, began to have little churches held in, in caves. And the Waldensians, as they were known, were people that believed that salvation was through Christ and baptism was to take place after salvation. And as they were there near Turin, Italy, they uh, worshiped God, but oftentimes the Catholic Church would come and get, catch them worshiping, and they would take the women and spear them through, and, and they would take the men and throw them over the uh, cliffs of those mountains. And, and uh, history tells us that there were hundreds of thousands of these people who died for their faith in Jesus Christ, and because they believed in simple things like baptism after salvation. We're told that by 1229, the Inquisitions were in full action. Pope Gregory IV raised an army to kill several hundred more people called Albigenses. Uh, uh, and on and on it goes, the Waldensians, the Albigenses, these people were martyred at a great number for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember visiting the caves of the Waldensians years ago. I think I have a couple slides of that visit. Fellas, if you have those to show. And uh, this was interesting. This is inside one of the caves. And the sign says, this is the College of the Barba. And I remember asking, what do they mean, College of the Barba? They said it was in this cave uh, where Waldo would gather men around a table. I'll show you the table in just a moment. And he would teach them the word of God concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the church and baptism and some of these things. I said, what is the word barba? They said, the word barba means uncle. They said, we would never refer to a Bible teacher as father. 
And of course, that was directly referring to the Roman Catholic practice. They said, we would not call someone Father. That title is reserved for the Heavenly Father alone. I think I have a picture of the little table where they gathered. And this is, this is a, a, one of the tables remaining. All these hundreds of years where they would gather around and where they would teach uh, these uh, uncles, these men that were going to go to the caves, that were going to go out in hiding and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, the Catholics that would come, they were uh, coming from the, under the commission of the Dukes of Savoy, the, the government and the church working together to persecute these, uh, uh, these people and to uh, eliminate them. They were the hated ones. And by the way, uh, hatred against the truth has always been a part of our faith. We just have been so blessed in America to have such little persecution. We may face some in the upcoming days. I think I had one more slide here uh, that uh, uh, this is just a statue of Peter Waldo. But, but we see in this era there was great persecution. And I share this with you simply to remind you that there is such a thing as a trail of blood. There are people that have literally died for the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important that we remember that. One author said of the Reformation, Were it not that Baptists have been grievously tormented and cut off with the knife during the past 1,200 years, they would swarm in greater numbers than all the Reformers. By the way, let me tell you who wrote that. A man by the name of Cardinal Hosus, who was present for the Council of Trent in the 1500s. A Roman Catholic cardinal said, Had we not killed so many of these Baptists, they would be in greater number than all the other groups together. And this was the admission of a Roman Catholic cardinal. And so we see that the church is God's institution and God has sustained it. And the way it will continue is as we obey the Great Commission. And there are those that have gone before us and in their obedience they have suffered and they have died. But we're here today opening the scriptures because of some who were willing to die to translate the scriptures. We're here today celebrating the freedom that we have to preach because of some who were willing to shed their blood for the very doctrines that I've been mentioning this morning. The calling of the church, where did that begin? It began with Jesus Christ himself. The concept of the church, it is made up of saved, baptized believers, baptized under the local church's uh, biblical authority. And the continuation of the church, that's why we're here. We want to be able to say that we stood in our place for our generation to help other people be saved and baptized and come into the local church so that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will remain strong until the trumpet sounds. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on that team when Jesus Christ comes again. I want to be not only saved and baptized, but I want to be a part of a local New Testament church making a difference. And young people... You are in a long line of men and women who have paid a great price for the truths in this book. And, and I want you to value that and to be grateful for it and to thank God for it. I think of uh, John Bunyan who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. And there was a period after the Reformation, but a period of time, when the Church of England was requiring that preachers, Baptist preachers as well, had to take a license in order to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John Bunyan would not take the license. Uh, John Bunyan of conviction felt that his authority came from Jesus Christ alone. By the way, this is what Baptists believe. We believe that the church belongs to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John Bunyan said, I'm not going to acknowledge any other head save the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went to prison 
for his belief and for his conviction. And during that time, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, which is the second best-selling book after the Bible in the English language. He paid a price, and I just want to challenge you today. I do not know what the price may be, but I see a lot of people, they don't want to pay any price. They want to look like the world, act like the world, sound like the world, water down the gospel. But let me encourage you, don't water it down. Preach it to your generation, as Baptists have done for so many years.